Uh, Let's open our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be covering verses 20 to 46. I titled this morning's message, A Question of Authority. And let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, that it speaks as loud and clear today as it always has. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that your word would have its way in our hearts this morning. That you would teach us something more about your nature and your character and who you are. Lord, as we look at your life, as we look at, Lord, the path that you took to the cross and what that means to us. I pray that you just pour out your spirit upon this church this morning. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Renew, Lord, our strength this morning. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, we read verses 12 to 19. This was Jesus returning to the Temple Mount. Coming back to the Temple Mount, and it was on this day, which I believe was Monday that Jesus cleansed the temple. But on his way to the temple, he also saw a fig tree that he cursed. Jesus, with all authority, and, and all of the zeal that he had for his father's house, and in his righteous anger, he came into that temple court area on that day, And he drove out those who had taken the house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. He had all the authority to do that. And he did it with great zeal and he did it with a righteous anger. And he literally drove them out of that temple precinct. We pick up... This morning, uh, first by reading last week, I think we just need to, to keep it all going in context here. Starting in verse 12, it says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, were told they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfect praise. Then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Now in the morning as Jesus returned to the city, he was hungry And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, Let no fruit grow on you ever again. 
and immediately the fig tree withered away. The rest of this chapter continues in this Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. The day is now Tuesday. It's three days before Jesus would go to the cross. And Jesus again gets up at the place that he was staying there in Bethany with his disciples, and he makes his way again towards the city, towards Jerusalem. As each day passes in this Passion Week, the opposition against Jesus and the tension that was in that place, I believe, was mounting. It was growing stronger. Well, the disciples didn't see, but what our Lord saw is that the powers of Satan and darkness were at work. It was actually raging there on that temple mount. The religious leaders that uh, were there, uh, they were feeling more and more threatened by the Lord. Uh, they They were getting actually more irritated to the point that they wanted to take his life. They were plotting how they could take him and kill him. That's pretty intense. And I also believe that the disciples, as they witnessed firsthand what was going on there between Jesus and the different dialogues that he was having there on that temple mount, they were probably getting a little nervous. Things were heating up. But something else that I see is that all as all of this is going on, we still see Jesus taking the time to teach. Taking the time to disciple his men, to teach them lessons. We see Jesus also taking the time to heal all of those who came to him to be healed. He never got so wrapped up into all of it that was in front of him that he missed the important things. There were people that needed to be touched. There were people that were crying out, Hosanna. And he was being glorified even in the midst of all of this. But this Tuesday, this day of this Passion Week, was going to be a full day of teaching for our Lord. He was, going to, he was going to do a whole lot of teaching, as a matter of fact, just in one day. We finished last week in verse 19 with Jesus cursing the fig tree. Uh, something that uh, the disciples saw Jesus do, uh, and I think they were a little bit perplexed by it, but I don't think that they quite understood why. Jesus walked up to this tree and he saw that it was in full leaf. But there was no pre-fruit on this fig tree. Pre-fruit meaning that the tree typically grew a small immature piece of fruit before it would actually produce its full fruit in the fall. 
Jesus cursed that fig tree and he said, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And what the disciples didn't understand or see is they they saw this miracle take place. They didn't really understand the implications of what Jesus was doing. It just simply says that Jesus was hungry. And they were too. And then he curses this fig tree. I think that the disciples were impressed with this miracle. But they didn't realize really the sign that Jesus was giving. And the sign that he was giving was concerning Israel. You see, Israel had all the signs of fruit. They had the temple. They they were God's chosen people. They were given the oracles of God. They had everything by outward appearance. They had this facade, if you want to say, that they were fruitful. But there was no fruit. There was really no fruit in them. In our text today, Jesus again gets up on Tuesday morning, I believe, and he again with his disciples makes his way back to the city. And as he's on his way walking down this two-mile trek from Bethany to the Temple Mount, he walks by that fig tree again. It's the same tree that he had cursed the day before. And we pick that up in verse 20. Look in your Bibles. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, or we could say, of a truth I say to you, If you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it would be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Jesus now takes this cursing of this fig tree And he turns it around now to a time of teaching and discipling his men. It's incredible how the Lord's able to do those things, isn't he? He shows a picture of Israel and their fruitlessness. And then he turns around and he uses as a way to teach his disciples a lesson in faith. Mark's gospel gives us a few more details about what this looked like as they were walking up to this fig tree. We read in Mark eleven twenty. it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from its roots. And then we're told this, And Peter, here's Peter again, the spokesperson for the group, And Peter, remembering, he remembered the day before when Jesus had cursed it. He said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so Jesus answered and said to them. He doesn't just say it to Peter. He's using this as a time now to teach his disciples something. And this is what he says. Have faith in God. 
For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. A lesson that we all need to learn. So, A lesson in faith, something that we need to grab hold of ourselves. I've shared on a number of occasions that those two sets of doors in the back, uh, one of them, I was thinking as I was looking at these words here, one of them I would like to say, you are now entering the mission field above one set of doors. And the other one I would like to put above the door would have faith in God. And that'd be every time you walk out of here, you're entering into the mission field. And on the other side, have faith in God. The disciples were needing another lesson in faith. We might be scratching our heads at times as we've gone through this gospel and we've seen the various times that Jesus taught them a lesson in faith. Uh, There were a number of occasions that he had to gently rebuke them and say to them, Oh, you of little faith. I told you we were going to go to the other side, didn't I? And then you began to doubt. And, And Peter, when you took your eyes off of me and you put them on the storm and you began to sink, Oh, ye of little faith. And we think to ourselves, how many times do they need to learn this? As he fed the 5,000, as he fed the 4,000, and even when he fed the 4,000, they questioned his ability to be able to do it. But then I started remembering how many times God has taken me back. How many times has he taken you back? You've mounted up with faith at times, But then you find yourself in a place again of doubt, questioning God. Is he able to do this? And we go right back through it again. But isn't our Lord gracious towards us? Isn't he he just so compassionate and patient towards us that he says, I'll teach it to you again. I'll show you again. Something that we need to remember as Christians is that whenever your faith is being tested, God's not testing your faith for his benefit. He's not testing you to see so he can see how great your faith is. He's testing your faith for your benefit so that you can see how little or how great your faith was. It's important to know that. And God will never test your faith for any other reason than for you to grow by it. You see, a faith that is never tested is a faith probably that is not growing. 
When you are tested in your faith, when you're put up against the wall, when you are called to step out onto the water and to believe God for something greater than you are able to do in yourself, your faith grows. And he knows that. God knows that. And that's why he does it as our heavenly father, as our loving heavenly father. He puts your faith through tests so that you'll grow, that you'll mature, that you'll be able to step out onto the water in greater ways. He tests your faith so that you can see where your faith is. You say, I'm okay with that, God, don't test me. You know, because sometimes we we don't welcome them, do we? (laughs) I'm okay, God. You know what I mean? But at the same time, the Lord does it because he wants us to see where our faith really is. How many times do we say, oh, yeah, I think my faith is pretty strong. I don't know that I ever say that. But when God puts us into that place and then we realize it wasn't as strong as I thought. I thought it was greater than it is. God does it for your benefit. That's important to know. But Jesus, on this particular day, he sees his disciples marveling at the miracle. They're marveling at the fact that he was able to curse this fig tree and then the next day they walk by and the whole thing is withering away. They were amazed. What do you think their faces looked like as they saw that tree that was once green and lush and full of leaves and now from the root up it was just withered away? Just in one day. And Jesus, seeing this marvel in their faces, seeing this amazement, Jesus tells them, do you know how I did this? Do you know how I was able to curse this fig tree and that it did what it did? Have faith in God. And do not doubt in your hearts, but believe those things that he says, and it'll be done. Believe those things. Jesus turns this around and he uses it for a lesson in faith. He's telling them, have faith in God. Have faith in the one who is able to do the miraculous. Is that the kind of faith that you exercise? When you pray and you lift these these hard requests up to the Lord, the things that you have no control over and you can't fix it and you can't heal it and you can't make it better, but do you call out in faith to the one who is able to do the miraculous? Do you have faith in the things that God says in his word? The promises that he has already given to you Do you stand upon them in faith and say, God, even when I don't see the answer to this prayer right now, even when when it's been a long time, and God, are you even hearing? Are you exercising faith in the things that he has already promised that he will do? 
Because if God has promises, promised that you can be assured of this, God is going to do it. God is going to be faithful. He will answer that prayer. He will answer the cry of your heart when you call out to Him. Often, the difference between little faith and the faith that can move mountains is how big is your God? That's a question. If I asked you all a personal question this morning, how big is your God? I mean, is he a small God? You know, is he a medium God? Is he a large God? How about an extra large? Or is your God, is he awesome? Is he omnipotent? Is he all-powerful? Is he able to do what you can't do? Is that the God that you call out to in faith? Or do you just call out to the, the small God? And you limit him by your unbelief. Your inability to believe that he can do it. He loves it when he sees his children just step out. Believe Him. When it, when, it, when it seems unsure, but I'm going to trust you anyway, God. Can your God do the impossible? That's a miracle. That's what a miracle is. And God still does miracles today. Jesus says to the disciples... Not only could you do what I just did by cursing this fig tree and doing a miracle like that, but look what it says. But also, that's what it says in your Bible. But also, if you say to this mountain, <laughs> I, I think the mountain he's talking about is the mountain they're standing, the Mount of Olives, as they were making their way to the city. There's the Mount of Olives. You could say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and it would be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Do you understand that what I just read to you is a promise from God? That's a promise. That's the kind of thing that we stand upon as believers. If you ask in prayer, believing, that's important. You will receive. Seems so simple, doesn't it? But, but why do we get tested to our very core that we can trust Him that He can do it? Quite often it's because our faith hasn't grown enough. But God wants to grow our faith. But let me say something to you all this morning about asking God for things in faith. There's a lot of teaching out there, you know, these faith things that people say about just claiming things and naming things. And in faith, I'm going to believe God. And, and basically, we start thinking, I can move the hand of God. I can make him do what I want him to do if I just have faith. We need to be careful that the things that we ask of God 
that they're according to his will. You see, those are the things that he's going to do. Not me twisting his arm by my faith and I'm going to make him respond because I have this great faith. And he's going to do what I've told him to do. God doesn't operate that way. As a matter of fact, he's not obligated to give you everything that you ask for. He's not obligated to do it. What he is obligated to do is that when you're praying something according to the will of God, and you're believing that God is able to do it, he will respond. Even to the point of taking this mountain and being cast into the sea. Now, we're never told in Scripture that the Lord ever did that or allowed them to do that. This is a way of showing them how great faith can be. God doesn't do things just for the wow factor. He does it for a purpose. Aren't you glad that God doesn't give you everything that you ask for? We don't do it with our children, those of us that have children. Why? It's not good for them. And he does the same with us. He doesn't give us everything that we want. But he will always give us those things that are his will. Paul wrote this to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, speaking to us as Christians, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is the most reasonable thing you should do. And then he says this, and do not be conformed to this world. This is important. Don't be conformed to the world you're in, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I found myself walking through the Lord for the years that I have that the closer I am to God in my relationship, the more I get to know Him and His nature and who He is and just get to know Him through His Word. When I seek first the kingdom of God, when I make that a priority in my life, that He's what I get out of bed every day for. He's my reason for living. When I do those things and I look to his word and I stand upon the promises of God's word, I find myself knowing God's will in a better way. We can actually get in a little bit into the mind and the heart of God to where we go, you know what, God, I I don't believe this is your will, so I'm not going to pray it. Instead of us just lifting up prayers and just thinking we're going to make God through my faith just move him. Because this is what I want. This is what I need. And sometimes God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Even in your sickness, even in your infirmities, even in those things that you are in the midst of. I'll give you the enduring grace and the grace that will take you through it. But I'm going to allow you to be tested. We serve a a very loving, heavenly Father 
that is just so patient and gracious. And he wants us to know his will. I can remember as a young Christian thinking, how do these people talk like they just know what God's saying to them? It seemed like to me, like, you know, how, how do I know? How, how, do I, how do I tune in like that? And what I come to realize is that I know a lot more of God's will for my life now, and it's because I'm doing the things that I just said. Seeking first the kingdom of God, getting to know him through his word, knowing the very mind of the Lord, getting in, you know, and we don't know him perfectly. We never will. But God, I want to know you more. Have you ever asked God for something that he didn't answer? <laughs> I think we could all raise our hand. He didn't answer. And immediately, we start thinking, does God even hear me? Does he even hear my prayers? He's not answering. I, I, I've prayed this 50 times and no answer. It's an issue of faith quite often, isn't it? That we just need to trust God, even when we don't get the answer yet. You see, Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. That's faith. We read on in chapter 11, verse 6 of Hebrews, without faith it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's an important word. Those that would diligently seek him. We read in the book of James in chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, and this is in the context of trials and tribulations... If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. If you lack wisdom and you ask God for it, according to his word, he'll give it to you liberally. It's a promise of God. So do we ask? And do we trust that he's going to impart his wisdom? Wisdom from above. Wisdom is knowledge, it's application of knowledge. It's what do I do with the knowledge? It's what do I do now, Lord? Give me your wisdom. But then it goes on to say, but let him ask in faith. With no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And just get that picture in your mind. For let not that man or let not that woman suppose that they will receive anything from the Lord. He is double, a double-minded man that is unstable in all of his ways. The Lord wants to grow our faith. He wants to teach us that we can trust him without doubting. In James chapter 4 we read... Where do wars and fights come from from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. 
You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. He's talking about all of these things of our flesh. All of these things that we would chase after. All the things that we would want but we can't have. And yet you do not have because you do not ask. Instead of fighting for those things and warring for those things and running after those things like you do, you don't have because you don't go to the one that you should ask. God, I this is my need. This is what I need. Would you, Lord, meet this need? Would you, t- whatever your request is before the Lord, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask, and sometimes when you do ask, you do not receive. James says, why? Because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, quite often the things are, this is what I want, God. This is what I need, God. I've got them at, you know, but, but God says, no, I don't think that's good for you. But why, God? I asked in faith. Why won't you give it to me? Because it's not good for you. Because I, I, I don't see it being a benefit to you and to your growth in me. You see, God will withhold. Even when we think that we're going to just lift it up in great faith. He'll give us only what's his will and only what's good for us. One author wrote this. We can only believe God, believe for one thing when we are in such union with God that his thought and purpose can freely flow into us. That's getting to know God, knowing his will, suggesting we should pray for and leading us to the point in which there is a perfect symphony and understanding between us and the divine mind. Faith is always the product of such a frame as this. It's getting in tune with the Lord. It's getting in tune with His mind. It's understanding Him through His will, His will through His word. So that when we lift up our prayers and we pray for situations and for people and all these various things, God will work. God will act. God will do it. I love this song. It's the course to Lauren Daigle's song, I Will Trust in You. Many of you have heard that song on the radio, but it says this in the course. When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, what's it say? I will trust. I will trust. I will trust in you. You see, quite often it takes greater faith on your part and on my part to be able to trust God when you don't get the answers, when you don't see the mountains being moved or the waters being parted. And you find yourself questioning God. And sometimes it, it takes greater faith to stand upon what you do know. God, you're going to be faithful to me. And I believe in you. And I believe that your hand is upon me. And even in my infirmity, Lord, that you've allowed me to endure, Lord, you're there. 
And I trust you with my life. I trust you with where you're leading me. And we don't have to be afraid and to question God. We go on in verse 23. Now when Jesus came into the temple, look at your Bibles. We're told that the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, look what he says, or what they said to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? That's what the religious leaders were saying to Jesus. But notice that it says, by what authority are you doing these things? You came into this temple court and you cast out all these money changers. Who gave you the authority to do that? You know, they were questioning the authority of him that as these people were coming up and he was healing them and they were saying, Hosanna to the Lord. And and these children were crying out, Hosanna. Who gave you the authority to heal on this mount? And who gives you the authority to teach the people that are up here? You see, to these Jewish leaders, authority was very important. They were the ones that believed they gave the authority to people to teach. We'll give you your time to be able to teach the people. You need to come and request. And so authority to them was very important. And so for Jesus to come up onto that temple mount, and here's the chief priest, this is the head man, and the elders, this Sanhedrin that was there confronting him, questioning him why he had the authority to teach and to do the things that he was doing. They were irritated. They were threatened. They were upset. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to ride into Jerusalem as king? Everything he was doing was saying, I don't need your authority. I'm the king of kings. I rode in here because I am the king. I don't need your authority because, you know what, I am the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here they are, the religious leaders, saying, Who do you, how, you think you have the authority to teach? He's the living word. We spent those six years in Wales, and I had opportunity just about every year to go to a place called Moriah Chapel. Moriah Chapel was the place that the 1904 Welsh Revival broke out. How many of you have heard of the Welsh Revival? In 1904, there was over 100,000 people in less than a year in in the UK there that had given their life to Jesus Christ. This was an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. You know how that began? Through a young man by the name of Evan Roberts. He was the son of a coal miner. This man came back to Moriah, his home church, leaving college, believing that God was sending him back to to not finish college, but to go back to Moriah. 
and to teach. And when he got there, he asked the elders of that church if he could teach there from the pulpit. They said, what's your credentials? You don't have the authority to, get, to stand up behind the pulpit in the main sanctuary and to be able to teach the people. You don't have the degree. And so because of that, we'll let you go over to the side chapel over there and you can sit with those young people and you can have your study over there. That happened on Halloween of 1904. And they began a prayer meeting that was not really a teaching time, but seeking the Lord and confessing sin and getting their life right. And in one week, almost a hundred of those youth gave their life to Jesus Christ. Some of those prayer meetings were going till three o'clock, four o'clock, and even through the night. Each night it went longer and longer. And God was pouring out His Spirit upon Evan Robertson, all of these young people that were in there. God gave him the authority to speak on his behalf. Man thinks that I give the authority to people. No, God's the one that gives the authority. The Welsh revival broke loose after that, and that 100,000 people that gave their life, it affected this whole world. From 1904 to 1907, the Welsh revival spread throughout the whole of UK and even touched parts of this world. Incredible. God says, I'm going to use this one man, Evan Roberts, this young man that is being told you can't stand at that pulpit and teach. You don't have the authority to do so. You see, Jesus said this of himself in Matthew chapter 28. He says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. And he says to his disciples, because that authority is given to me, I can give you this command. Go and make disciples. Uh, Go out and baptize them. Go out and teach them everything that I have taught you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. He says, I have the authority. And I just gave you the authority to do the same. Do you know that you have the authority to go out and open your mouth to people in this world? You have authority from the living God to do that. Here they are telling Jesus, what authority do you have to come up here and teach? So Jesus, again, he's going to stop the mouths, stop the mouths of his accusers. He, with much wisdom, knew how to do that. And look what he does in verse 24. Jesus says to uh, these religious leaders, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. This is wisdom. This is Jesus knowing how to stop the mouths of the accusers. He says, the baptism of John, where was it from? He's asking them the question. Was it from heaven or from men? And look what it says. They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear 
of the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and they said, what did they say? We do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the Lord never calls us to pander to people. He doesn't tell us to go out and pander to the people that make a mockery of the Lord. He doesn't say give them all the answers as they sit there and they they just try to, to, to come off with the nonsense. And the Lord's not going to do that. He knew their hearts. He knew where they were coming from. And he wasn't going to pander to it. And he says, and neither do I tell you by what authority that I do these things. Could you just see them whispering to themselves, these religious leaders? Whispering in between themselves, talking to each other. What are we going to say? What are we going to do? He's got us in a predicament here. Let's just plead ignorance. We'll just plead ignorance. We don't know. And isn't that what people do today? Agnostic. People that just want to be remain ignorant. That's what the word means. People say, I want to stay in the middle ground. I'm not going to tell you there is a God or isn't a God. I'm not going to say there was a Jesus or not a Jesus. I'm just going to stay right in the middle here. And if I stay in this safe zone, then you can't touch me. See, that's what people try to do. Remain ignorant. Stay in that place of, I don't know, we don't know. I had an opportunity this last week here to talk to a couple Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door. I kept them there until the car pulled up like I usually do. Just talking to them and sharing with them a lot of their own doctrine. Because, see, I've studied the Jehovah's Witnesses and I've shared with them their own doctrine. And as our conversation went on, they said to me, "Uh, did you used to be a Jehovah's Witness? I said, no, I didn't. But I have looked in and I've studied what you teach and I have come to find that it is doesn't line up with the Bible. So we talked for probably a good half hour and finally when that car was sitting there, they said, we have to go. But we would like to bring back some elders soon to come and talk with you. And what I said to them, I said, you know what? I'm happy to have them come back. Have them come back. But I said, have them bring the Bible. Don't bring the New World Translation, which is your Bible. Have them bring. She said, well, we use the King James too. They were like apologizing to me. But we use it too. I said, have them bring the Bible. And then we'll talk more about it. And they left. They haven't been back yet. So Jesus goes on and he now is going to, though he has stopped their mouths, he's going to also point something that is going to pierce their hearts. He's going to use a parable to do it. He's going to use something common of the day that they could relate to, to give them a mind picture so that they could see who they really are. He uses a actually three parables, but we're only going to look at two of them this morning. The parable of the two sons. This is actually only found in Matthew's gospel, but then he's also going to give them the parable 
of the wicked vine dressers. And then next week we'll look at chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast. Three parables in this conversation with these religious leaders that he backs up one right after the other. Look what he says in verse 28. He says to these religious leaders, But what do you think? After he had just told them, Neither do I tell you what, by what authority I do these things. He says, But what do you think? And that's a way of Jesus getting their attention. He's asking them a question. He's telling them to to think about what I'm about to say to you. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in your vineyard. Now, this picture would be familiar to these religious leaders. These two sons at this point, they're probably not getting it, but I believe that Jesus is pointing to them as being the two sons. This father or this man had two sons, which I believe speaks to them as these elders. And he comes to the first one of them and he says, son, go work today in my vineyard. Now the vineyard in scripture is always a a picture of Israel. Here's these religious leaders, the leaders of Israel. Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and he said, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it and he went. Get get this in your mind. These are the religious leaders that he's speaking to. I will not, but afterwards he regretted it and he went. Then he came to the second son there and he said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, but he did not go. You see that disobedience? You see they're not really doing what they've been asked to do. Here's the religious leaders of Israel that should be guiding and leading the people. And they're not doing what they should be doing. And then Jesus says, which of the two did the will of the Father? He asked the religious leaders that question. You tell me, which of these two did the will of the Father? And they said to Jesus, the first. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, speaking to them, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. How do you think that that spoke to their heart in that moment? The kingdom of God comes, uh, the, 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 the tax collectors and harlots, those were the, the bottom of the barrel. The tax collectors and the harlots in the mind of these religious leaders. They entered the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because they listened. They responded. They repented. They came and their pride was broke. And they came before God. And they're going to enter the kingdom of God before you. What do you mean? We're the religious leaders of Israel. And then he says, for John came to you. Speaking of John the Baptist, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. 
And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe in him. Whoa. That got to the point. These religious leaders, I believe they knew deep in their heart that John the Baptist, that he was a preacher of righteousness. They knew deep in their heart that he was a prophet. But here's the problem. They didn't like it because they were threatened by him. There were people coming to him instead of to them. And there were, there were things, that, issues that were going on in their hearts. And it was pride. It didn't allow them to. They couldn't. The next parable continues to show these religious leaders about their sin and their rejection of Jesus Christ. That this was going to be their downfall. Look at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner, and I believe this landowner is God, who planted a vineyard. There's that word vineyard again, Israel. And he set a hedge about, which is just a fence around the vineyard. He dug a wine press, which they would dig it into the ground. And he built this tower, which was like a lookout tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers, which the vine dressers here, I believe, are these religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to. And he went into a far country. So here's this man leasing this vineyard that he had built to these vine dressers, the ones that should be taking care of the vineyard, the one that should be responsible with the vineyard, that picture of the house of God or of Israel. Isaiah 5, 7 tells us, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And then in verse 34, now when the vintage time drew near. So they plant their grapes, they plant their vineyards. The vineyard, uh, vintage time comes. And so the, uh, the, uh, the owner of the land, he sends his servants out to go to the vine dressers that they might receive fruit, which was common. That was part of the law. It's what they did. They were allowed to come and partake of some of the fruit of that under their lease agreement. And the vine dressers were told they really probably already had this predetermined in their minds. It was already in their hearts. They were all ready for this, that when these servants arrived, verse 35, The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. They wanted this vineyard for themselves. They wanted all the fruit for themselves. They wanted it all to take to them. What do you think was going on in these religious leaders' minds? Jesus, on that same day is going to leave the Temple Mount. And we read in chapter 23, verse 37, which is on the same day that we're talking about, Jesus is going to turn around and look over the city from the Mount of Olives there, and he's going to cry out saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. You see, it was these religious leaders. It was the religious leaders of Israel that killed the prophets, that that didn't want the prophets. 
again, verse 36, Jesus goes on in this parable and he says that the owner sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Mark says, Mark's gospel of this parable says that he sent many others. Many others were going out, but they were beaten and killed. Verse 37 says, Then the last of all, he sent his son. Oh. Last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. He's talking about the son coming before these vine dressers, these religious leaders. Mark's gospel reads, therefore still having one son, his beloved son. Who are we talking about here? He also sent him to them last saying, they will respect my son. You see, God is very compassionate towards sinners. He's compassionate towards these religious leaders in the sense that he would want them to come in repentance and to turn to him and to see him as Messiah. But they had no respect for the Son. They had no respect for the one that was standing in front of them. Their pride would not allow it. Their disbelief would not allow it. We're told in verse 38, but when the vine dressers saw the son, when they saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Do you see the picture that Jesus is using in this parable as he stands before these religious leaders? Remember, Three days ahead, Jesus is going to be hanging on the cross by these religious leaders. It's only three days away. And he's going to be crucified. And they're going to be the ones that are going to be there at that court. And they're going to be condemning Jesus to be crucified. When these vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They began to plot. They were already plotting. They were plotting in their hearts and amongst themselves. This is the the father's son. Uh, Let's kill him. That's what was going on. And these are the religious leaders. These are the ones that are supposed to be doing good and righteous and right. We're not going to give him our kingdom. You see, that's the issue. This is our kingdom. This is our temple. These are our people. We're not going to give him our inheritance. We're not going to give him what has been given to us. This Jesus that is up here on this mount, with all of this authority that he is proclaiming to the people and teaching the people, we're not giving him our inheritance. Verse 39 says, So they, the vine dressers, they took him and they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Jesus told his disciples 
In chapter 20, we've already read this in verse 18. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. It was already marked out. Everything that we're reading here is the unfolding of prophecy. It's the unfolding of what the Lord had already told his disciples was going to come to pass. He's standing in front of these religious leaders, and he's telling them by what authority that he stands here. They're saying, we're going to take you and you're going to kill you. That's what they were saying in their heart. He says, and we'll close with this, verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? That should make them be thinking and probably shaking a little bit. Their pride wouldn't allow them. He gave them, he's really given them opportunity. Their pride would not allow them to turn. At this point, I, I, they understood that even in this parable that Jesus was giving to them, they understood that it was unrighteous what was being done. It, it wasn't even right. These were the religious leaders. They knew that it was right, uh, wrong for, the, for what was taking place here. But then Jesus says, in verse 41, he said, they said to Jesus, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Do you see what their hearts were doing here? They knew what this parable was saying, that what Jesus was saying was right and just. These, these, uh, these vine dressers, they deserve judgment. They deserve to have it taken away from them and given to somebody else. They're saying that out of their mouth, not even realizing at this point that what Jesus is doing is he's pointing it to them. They're just going along with the parable going, yeah, he should have it taken away from them. And Jesus says to them in verse 42... Have you never read the scriptures? Do you know when he said those words to them that that was like an insult? These were the men that knew the scriptures. Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in his eyes. That's what he quotes to them. Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23. And therefore, Jesus says again, therefore I say to you, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. And the nation here that he's talking about is really both Jew and Gentile, the church age. It'll be given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. In other words, it's going to be taken from you and given to those who will take it. And then he says, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Wow. Jesus says to them, 
you could either be broken right now. You could either be broken and come in repentance and come in belief, or you'll be crushed. You'll be ground to powder. You've seen those, those grinding wheels as they run around on that grain on the... Just crushing, crushing it. Now when the chief priests, verse 45, and the Pharisees heard his parables, what's it say? They perceived that he was speaking of them. It took them a moment to get it. They didn't get it right at first. Yeah, those vine dressers, they deserve some judgment. But now they started talking. He's talking about us. What he's saying in this, he's, he's speaking about us. You would think that they would turn, but they won't. It says in verse 46, but when they sought to lay hands on him, <laughs> that means. <laughs> They're, they're trying to take his life. When they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. A heart that is set on disbelief won't believe. They won't turn in repentance, no matter what. You could do whatever and it won't turn. Jesus knew his accusers. He knew what they had in store for him. And he just really announced judgment upon them. Hebrews 12.2, we'll finish with this. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We have an incredible Savior that did all of this for us so that we could live, so that we could have eternal life. He despised the shame that all the cross meant and did. But it was the joy that was set before him. Do you know when you enter into the presence of the Lord someday... And you stand before, you know how much joy that is going to bring to our Lord when you stand in your righteous white garments that he has placed upon you. And he just simply did it because of his love for you, for me. Incredible. May the Lord use us this week. May the Lord fill you with his Holy Spirit. Open up doors, give you divine appointments this week give you a boldness to open your mouth for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.